I hope that statistics as a field starts to address or continues to address the bias that we have in our data and in our methods. The things that we have in our field that perpetuate the systemic bias out there. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of Stuff We Don't Learn in School. My name is Jenny. And I'm Victoria. And today we are joined with special guest Janine Harris, if you would like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I am a professor at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis, and the Brown School has degree programs for graduate students in social work and public health and public policy. And my job there is to teach statistics to the graduate students who are in the public health program. I do have a few from social work and social policy too, but mostly I teach public health students. And, and my students are mostly interested in understanding and improving the health of the public through their research and, and programs and policy. And so as a biostatistician, I kind of wanted to get your viewpoint on this universally known opinion on numbers and statistics, because numbers seem to be the only thing that is stable in our lives, especially now with so much social media and news sources telling us all of these different opinions, and we don't know who to trust or what to trust. And the only thing that it seems like we can trust is numbers. But as I was doing more research on this, it turns out that so many of the published work that gets released to the public isn't able to be reproducible, which is something that you are a strong advocate for. So first, how would you define reproducible research? Oh, yeah. Uh, so um, there, there are actually a few different terms. I, and you're absolutely right. There's a, a ton of research out there that can't be reproduced, I think. Um, Retraction Watch is a website that keeps track of studies that can't be reproduced. And I think they get something like five to 600 a year, five or 600. So that's that's a lot of stuff that can't be reproduced. There are a few different terms that are used to refer to this ability to do the same study more than one time and each time come up with the same result. The three terms that are used pretty widely are replicate, reproduce, and repeat. The most difficult thing to do and kind of the gold standard for making sure your research is high quality is to replicate it. Replication is to start over from scratch, from ground zero, and collect brand new data, analyze the brand new data, and hopefully come up with the same results as the prior study. Um, So this is what what we aim to do if we can afford it. It's very expensive and time consuming to replicate research. So the second word, reproduce, this also can be used to ensure your research is high quality. Reproducible research or reproducing research is taking data that's already been collected by you or by somebody else and using the methods that are, have already been described and ending up with the same result. And that sounds really easy, right? You have the same data, you use the same methods, you should get the same results. Yeah. But as I can attest to, and my students can attest to, and the authors of all those studies that get uh, retracted each year might be able to attest to, it's just not as simple as that. Often the data are not available or accessible to people to reproduce it. Even when they are accessible, rarely do researchers share their statistical code to show you exactly what they did. And method sections of research papers are just not detailed enough 
for another scientist to figure out exactly how a particular result was obtained. So people recode variables and they handle the same data in different ways. And so, you know, there's just not enough room in a typical method section of a research paper to include all of those things. And then the final word is, is repeatability. This is essentially using the same data and the same methods. It doesn't matter what the results are. If a study is repeatable, if you have the same data and the same methods, regardless of the results. So reproducibility is kind of in the middle there. It's less expensive and time consuming than replication, but it ensures that you get those same results, which is sort of what you're looking for when you do a study again with the same research question, look at it in a similar way. Yeah. So you said that, you know, reproducibility relies heavily on the amount of detailing that researchers or statisticians put in that method section of their paper. But you also said that sometimes that code isn't accessible. Do you see people doing that intentionally as to make it just their own research and not having that really spread out like a bit selfish in a way? I mean, that's a really, that's a really um, good, insightful question. I think we do see some people, and it could be data or code that is not being shared in part because they've spent so much time collecting that data. They've, they've written a grant, they've um, managed a team, and they've spent all this time collecting that data and doing this work to just share it out there in the world means that maybe somebody else is going to reap some of the benefits that they're hoping to reap from that information. But at the same time, studies that are reproduced are of higher quality, and it has a real value to the public to have quality science out there. So it's really thinking about your career and the careers of the people around you, and then also the public good of science. Uh, but there is some tension there, definitely. So that's a really um, interesting point. Yeah, the funny thing is today, I actually heard my dad talking about this exact thing. So <laughs> he's actually using someone else's data and trying to get the same results or have similar results to like what the study had. And he was just talking about how he couldn't get it. And he was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I'm just not getting the same results. So I guess he's trying again. But also, I think the dilemma between your own success versus like other people's success and how by helping other people and making things like more open source, it might be harming you, but it's bettering society and like progress. That's a tough one because I think we see it in high school too. Yeah. Or like, you know, it'd be really helpful to collaborate, but also there's some sort of like unspoken competition. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I do, I do think that is an issue that comes up a lot when you're thinking about your career uh, and your advancement and things. So, you know, that's one potential place where, you know, science could change the culture a little bit so that there was some value placed on for your own career on whether or not you shared your data and you shared your code and you made your work open so that other people could build on what you're finding or could ask different questions of the same data. And in that way, the data has more value to society. You may learn things that you didn't think of even looking for if you allow other researchers to, to access your data. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think a culture shift would help a lot. Right now we have you know tenure process and they have getting grants and things. A lot of the stuff relies on you having your own publications and leading large teams and getting funding with yourself as a principal investigator and things like that. 
there's a, there's a lot of hurdles. Yeah, but unfortunately, these hurdles, they do have quite a lot of impact on the real world. So what are some examples that you know of specifically where this lack of reproducibility in research actually, I mean, there obviously have been a lot of cases, but which ones are the main ones that come to mind whenever you think of negative impacts of lack of reproducibility in research? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit in the emails we had back and forth, and you had mentioned Andrew Wakefield, and certainly that might be one of the more widely known examples. So Wakefield published this study quite a while ago, I think over 20 years now, yeah. in a really highly visible journal, and it linked vaccines with autism. And this turned out to be a false claim but it's still repeated and it still influences whether or not people trust vaccines and vaccinate their children. It's still believed by a lot of people that there is some linkage there. And so while I'm certainly not an expert in a lot of the details of that particular case, I do know that the work turned out to be fraud rather than just some kind of a mistake in data management or using the wrong statistical method or something like that. It was it was more, more fraud than than that. And fraud is really, it's responsible for some poor quality research, but it's a much smaller proportion. So I, I think a study found that it was about a quarter, about like 26% or so of research that couldn't be replicated because of fraud, while the other three quarters was due to errors from, you know, maybe things like bias and selecting the people into your study selectively reporting only certain results, dropping people from your data set if they don't quite fit what you're trying to report. You know, they're an outlier and you just drop them instead of trying to figure out why. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of lots of ways that, that research can have these questionable research practices, as they're sometimes called, and then this renders them not reproducible. So uh, you asked about some specific examples. One that I can think of is the this big study in 2013 on how having a Mediterranean diet, which means you have lots of olive oil and you eat lots of nuts. Yeah. Um, and this study found that this was really good for your heart health. And over the next five years after it was published, people started to look more deeply into this study and they found a bunch of problems with the study design and the sampling. There were a couple of things for example, I think families were selected into the study sometimes together as a group instead of just mm -hmm. an individual. Mm -hmm. And that means those five people or however many were in the family are not independent of one another. So they, their heart health might all um, increase or decrease, not just based on the diet, but based on other things they have in common by virtue of being our family, yeah. uh, living in the same place. And there were other issues, but mostly around sampling. So it wasn't fraud that the researchers set out to fabricate data or whatever. They just, the sampling went, went awry in a couple of different ways and it made the results unreliable. So, you know, I know I've been eating olive oil for <laughs> years, probably because I heard this study at some point and switched out all my oil in my kitchen, but you know. The olive oil market is thriving, whether it's because of this study or not. I mean, we don't know, but surely could have been. Yeah, I'll just mention one more thing. There's this study that I cite a lot in my work that showed over the course of 10 years from, I think, 2000 to 2010, that 400,000 people were enrolled in medical studies, so clinical studies, that could not be reproduced later. And more than 70,000 of those people were given some sort of medical intervention. 
intervention. So those people have a pretty high risk to their health by being in a, in a study that's perhaps using some questionable research practice or something else that makes it not reproducible. So I rely heavily on... <laughs> I tell Victoria this all the time. I could never be a person in finance or business because I just, my moral conscious is always on the front of my thoughts. If every action that I do is, is like, is this right? Like I can't persuade myself to do anything other. So just the thought of putting that many people at risk and then going through with questionable research, like eliminating an outlier or doing something or another in order to make your research favorable towards what you'd want to see or what the public wants to see. And then perhaps that research going on to incentivizing a creation of a drug that could have such harmful repercussions to a whole population that just uh, that baffles me. And unfortunately, it is something that does go on in the practice of medical research. And I would say I compliment Jenny, not like <laughs> that we're completely polar opposite, <laughs> but <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds terrible no matter which way I frame it. But I would say like, you know, Jenny's here and I'm gesturing to like the extreme, you know, I'm, I move slightly to the left a little bit more. There are pros <laughs> and cons to both, Victoria. <laughs> like I, I can, I can understand it. I don't think it's great. But I always see myself doing this, and this is tiny, but, you know, maybe in the future it can amount to something bigger if I do go into research or business or whatever it is. Like, in English essays, all the time, I'll just remove some context behind the number <laughs> because I need it to match my argument. And, like, you know, if it doesn't match, then, yeah, like, so just subtract yeah. a couple words, and then it does. But that is such a tiny example. But it's similar, I think, to what researchers do. You know, you remove kind of like mm. some people, you you subtract some of like the wording from the questionnaire. You kind and of fluff up things. You have your number. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in lieu of, I guess, my experiences, having been almost done with college applications, I can tell you from stories that others have told me past years and this year of them fluffing up certain numbers or certain activities to make their application seem better. So I guess it's kind of a parallel almost, their application to a research paper, except the research paper has a little bit more oomph in its repercussions, I would say. Oh, geez. Yes, yeah, so reproducibility and non-questionable research practices would obviously be much preferable and I think a very important issue to address. But to move on, another important issue that I think being a woman who might possibly go into STEM potentially and talking to a woman in STEM right now, obviously I think all of us are advocates for women in STEM. But I recently saw a study from the Pew Research Center that said that women do actually make up 50% of the STEM workforce. So why are we still advocating for women in STEM and why is it still such a relevant and necessary topic? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And um, you're hitting on all of my favorite things. So um, there are a lot of women in STEM, but uh, most of them, or maybe not most, many of them are in the S part, the science. So STEM is science, technology, engineering, technology, engineering and mathematics. 
Um, and a lot of them are in the science part. And primarily they're in healthcare jobs and life sciences and biology related jobs. And within those fields, they're, even within those fields, they might be in lower paying jobs. If you think about women who are in healthcare roles, they are more likely to be in nursing roles and physician roles. So even though they're well represented overall in the S part of STEM, they're still underrepresented in maybe some of the higher paying and more prestigious roles within that part of the STEM workforce. With the TEM, you have a completely different story. So in data science, in computer science and engineering, uh, there are still very few women and representation has actually gone down in the last couple of decades. So in the 90s, we kind of hit a high. I, I think it was like 32%, I want to say, in computer science for women. Um, and now we've gone back and we're in the mid 20% again. So there were all these programs in the mid 90s that were kind of trying to get more women into the field. And it, it seems like they worked, but then when the programs went away, the numbers went back down. So, so we do have a, a lack of representation. And I think there are several problems with this. First, I would say for the women themselves. So jobs in data science and computer science and engineering are high paying, they're rewarding, they should be accessible to everyone who has an interest, including women and including other gender identities that are underrepresented, including other race groups like Black and Hispanic people, which are underrepresented in, in STEM or in, in the TEM part of STEM at least. So those jobs should be open to everyone. The second is more of a, a societal um, piece. So uh, the lack of diversity in the data science and engineering workforce results in all sorts of systems and algorithms and just everyday things we use like cars and clothing um, that have some bias in them uh, built in against women and against people of color. And there, there are tons of examples of bias and I, I have a few of the shocking ones that are just stuck in my brain um, probably forever and ever like soap dispensers, automatic soap dispensers in a public restroom not working for people whose skin is darker. How, hiring algorithms that throw out female job applicants, which are identified because they went to an all-women's college or they were leading a women's group in high school or college. And the hiring algorithm sees that and throws their application out. Google algorithms that label Black people as gorillas. Facial recognition software to like unlock your phone works for uh, white males better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And one I just read about recently was Siri can help you find Viagra and it can help you find a prostitute, but it cannot help you find an abortion provider and it cannot understand the term rape. So we, we have all these things that come uh, into our daily life because this workforce is not diverse. So a great book about this uh, that I think you might be interested in is called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but you, I'm sure you can find it. Uh, she describes all the gender-related data gaps and how they farm health and how they keep women from having the same opportunities as men. You know, one example, like those other ones that kind of sticks out in my head is this idea that seat belts are created for the average male body. And as a result, women are 47% more likely to be harmed in car accidents. So, you know, they're, they're just, there are so many reasons out there why the data science and engineering and computer science workforce should include all kinds of people so that we can take this bias out of our systems and our algorithms and make, make the world a safer and healthier place for everyone. 
Because I'm sure that, you know, more often than not, these soap dispensers and things like that, they're human biases. You're, you're going to make things that cater to, I guess, you. And so having most of the workforce be white males or light colored people, it just it perpetuates this systemic racism. And I know that we've heard that term more and more often um, or systemic inequality in general heard this term more and more often especially this past year but it's so true because it really like it starts at the roots and it goes and seeps into politics and education and everything like that and so yes advocacy for minority groups and gender equality in the tem and parts of the s as well is definitely something that we need to push for more yeah like jenny said it's so subtle and i remember learning about this a while back and being really surprised because I never thought about this in health class when we learned CPR, which was, you know, CPR dolls were made for men. Like mm-hmm. there's no CPR doll that's like for like girls. Yes. Like, and that's so small, but stuff like that, I think contributes to a larger issue. And it's also interesting because I think whenever you say like racism or sexism, they're very bold words for mm. no reason really but like people think it's like very blatant like someone just saying something like very obviously wrong but a lot of the times they're just very tiny things that build up that are whether it's like you know you speak so well for a black person or you xyz like some sort of phrase like that but also like soap dispensers like who doesn't use it every day yeah. like when you're outside at work I mean that's that's crazy to me. There's one other example that just popped into my head as you were talking from that uh, Invisible Women book. Her very first chapter, she starts by talking about this town. I think it's in Sweden or Norway. It's kind of, you know, in one of those Northern European countries mm-hmm. um, where they passed a law that policy in this town had to um, reflect gender equity. Uh, and Somebody made a joke about in one of the meetings about this policy. Well, um, you know, at least I'm in charge of um, snow clearing and that can't possibly have anything to do with gender equity. And they turned out to be wrong uh, because it turns out that the snow clearing happened first for all the streets. And then after the streets were done, they did the sidewalks. And it turns out that men use the streets to drive their cars to work and women use the sidewalks to walk to the grocery store, walk, take their kids out, take their pets out, walk with their families. Oh and so gosh. snow clearing turned out to have a gender equity <laughs> um, issue. And when they started changing to do the sidewalks first, they saw a huge decrease in this town in weather-related injuries coming into doctors and hospitals in the winter. You know, you can drive pretty well on a small amount of snow, but mm-hmm. you can't walk on a small amount of ice and snow. I tried to do that today and I slipped at least three times. So, yes, I can completely attest to that. Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah. Really just like seeps into every corner. Yeah. Well, I think in an effort to combat this. The purpose of stuff we don't learn in school is to kind of delve deeper into perhaps more controversial topics or aspects of topics that teachers aren't allowed or can't talk about in a normal school year, whether that be for funding reasons or for time restrictions, so be it. But extracurriculars are a way, we have found out, to delve deeper, obviously, with stuff we don't learn in school. But Victoria and I have been deeply influenced by speech and debate and just 
exploring our speaking skills, public speaking skills through that. But obviously there are also many different organizations that promote this TEM part of STEM for ladies in particular. And you are heavily involved with an organization called Our Ladies. So would you like to explain that a little bit and tell us what the purpose of it is? Sure. Our ladies and R is like a, the letter R, mm-hmm. uh, not like <laughs> our ladies. Um, O-U-R. It's, it's the letter R and it stands for the R statistical software program that is free and open source for anyone to use, which makes it great for people who are, you know, students on a budget, mm-hmm. working for nonprofit and things like that. So right away, it's got kind of a social justice component it's to it. Beautiful community. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a global network. Our Ladies is a global network made up of local groups that are working to increase gender diversity in the art community. And so the local groups tend to be organized by people like me, and we conduct workshops and trainings, usually with women speakers and for women and other underrepresented genders to come and learn new skills in R. I've heard of some chapters doing um, career panels for women who want to get into the data science workforce, um, bringing in people from industry and academia to talk about how they got to where they are. The chapter that I organize in St. Louis, all our workshops have been hands-on workshops, and each one has had a topic like data visualization or some kind of specialty analysis like time series analysis we have coming up this spring. And they take many formats. I have partnerships in St. Louis, at least before the pandemic took us online, where Microsoft and this local company called Metafax provided space and food. So I would provide dinner and open it to anybody who wanted to attend. I have a speaker who is usually a woman or an other underrepresented gender identity Mm-hmm. Um, giving a, about an hour and a half to two hour workshop. And we just, you know, we do this about like five times a year. And so, so it's great. We're just, we're getting people trained up on new skills and we're also getting some networking going and, you know, you have the free food and it's just great. It's a really nice community. That's amazing. Community we found is something extremely influential. Like I know for a fact that if the speech and debate community at our school wasn't as strong as it is, I really wouldn't be the person that I am today, point blank period, you know? And so having a strong community like our ladies in say a college environment or just the city or the community that you are in, having that there and knowing that there are people who want to see you progress in this field that you don't see yourself in as much is absolutely amazing. And I think a great step forward from the multiple steps backward that we have taken since the 90s. Yeah, I'm a giant fan of mentorship and kind of like, you know, surrounding yourself with Mm. people who have like similar goals. I think it's just it's such a good way to see who you can be. And I think there's like this one quote that I wrote down, but I don't really remember the words. It's like, like other people are a reminder of the potential you have or the like who you can be, something along that line. And I think especially with coding and stuff with R, one of my friends who's good at coding and does a lot of that, I am not very experienced in that, has always told me like, it's one of those things where you have to break through that initial point 
and then it gets like exponentially easier. Like once you learn the syntax, the structure or whatever you need to learn to like tackle different issues or like analyze data, but you need to get past that first part. And sometimes, you know, you don't make it past the first part and then coding isn't as fun or like the technology aspect of STEM isn't as rewarding as it can be. But then having people to push you, answer your questions, be there for you if you have, you know, like coding issues or really just any issues is super nice. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Being part of this R Ladies and, and the R community has just been one of the great joys of my career. And I, I do feel like it has um, pushed me further and made just my job and my work more enjoyable, having those people out there to bounce ideas off of and work with and support and learn from. It, it's just, it, it's been amazing. So. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in coding, looking at the R community on Twitter is really active. They have a hashtag that gets retweeted. There are some kind of superstar R people out there um, who are online. A lot of fun stuff. Recently, we had some posts about um, doing art with R. So if you're an artist and a coder, you can find other people who are doing that. If you, if you like cooking and coding, there is some R ladies who for a while had a hashtag about the pastriarchy. So there's just, it's oh a great gosh. community. It's a lot of fun. That's so much fun. Oh my gosh, Victoria, you need to get on the, the cooking and art. I know, I have to learn how to cook. <laughs> and if I can learn how to code too, that's like a two for one. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you got to try that sometimes. Hitting two birds with one stone for sure. Another topic that we really wanted to talk about with you about was your textbook which is by the way guys for the listeners she's written a textbook like a whole a whole, a whole text like, like I can't I really I truly like cannot get over how cool that is like I've said this before I like I haven't finished a journal yet and I've had that journal since I was nine years old it's been a long time and I just cannot bring myself to constantly journal and like put down my thoughts from my life. So the fact that you've written textbook on statistics with R is is crazy. And I just want to know, like, what incentivized you to write it and what kept that passion for writing it throughout the process? Yeah, thanks for asking it. It was, it was a complicated process and it took a long time. I had a bunch of goals with my book. And I mean, as you've heard already in this interview, I'm really interested in improving representation of women in data science. And so that is one of the major goals of the book. I wrote it as a narrative, like a story with three women characters, and each of them is expert in some part of statistics or R, and they're all learning some part of statistics or R, and they sort of help each other through all these R topics and statistics topics throughout the book. I also cited reference material authored by women whenever possible. And then one of the chapters uses National Science Foundation data to examine the proportion of women who choose data science jobs and how satisfied they are with their job choice. So I also increased the number of women who've written a statistics textbook by one, just by being me and writing the book. Yes, um, so love it. <laughs> uh, so there's that. So there's a bunch of different ways I think this book can help with representation of women. So women can take a statistics class and actually see themselves visually in these character avatars that are throughout the book. The other two reasons I think I've touched on also today, one was to model reproducible research practices. So throughout the book, there are pull-out boxes that talk about reproducible research, its importance, and some little strategies that you can use in your code to make it reproducible. 
And then finally, using real world data was really important to me because mm -hmm. a lot of the textbooks and statistics rely on simulated data or data that has just been cleaned within an inch of its life, very neat. And it shows, it demonstrates some of the topics really well, but then students go out into the world and they get jobs and the data they're working with is very, very messy. Mm -hmm. And they are not, they haven't seen that before. They are not as well prepared as they could be to face some of the bigger data management and data cleaning challenges that they might face out in the world. So real world data is also really a lot more interesting. You can examine stuff like voting preferences or transgender healthcare, um, rather than, you know, some simulated X and Y variables that don't really have much meaning. So, so those were, those were all my goals. Um, you know, representation of women, reproducible research and real world data that gives my students kind of a boost on when they head out into the job market. Yeah. And I noticed you said that you kind of touched data relating to transgender rights and things like that. And I also noticed that throughout your book, you kind of touch on not exactly like politically neutral, I guess, topics, which Victoria and I are currently taking a stats class right now. And the data that we use are like M&Ms, you know? Like, but really let me just interject. Like, <laughs> I was looking at my stats notes today, and one of the examples we did was like, yeah, we did M&Ms. And also, what did we even do for like, I think I saw my notes. We did something about golf, and, you know, golf is cool and all. But <laughs> like, I was just like, this has no significance to my life. Like, I have yes. no idea how golfing works. And I don't even know what we were trying to find. But yeah. Yeah. And like there were other examples. I mean, I remember this specifically because you know, I play tennis, but like they were talking about spinning the racket before you uh, start start a game. And like unless you play tennis, you have no clue what that means at all. They're like so you, you spin the racket if it's W or an M and <laughs> half the class was like, what? <laughs> you know, but these controversial topics, they're very well known. Yes. But also to some people, like they might not be as comfortable reading about. So I just wanted to know what chose you to pick transgender data instead of M&Ms. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, I think that you both hit on um, pretty much why uh, in your explanations of, of your class. Um, I just think that working with data that is relevant to uh, your life and the world around you will help you see the power of statistics and you're more interested in what's going on. And so I think it's a real learning tool, learning boost. If you have a topic that you're interested in, whether or not you are comfortable or uncomfortable talking about the topic, at least you're interested in it and you'll remember some of the things. Uh, and plus it can apply to the world so you can see so if you do this chapter on transgender healthcare, and I think that chapter was about um, descriptive statistics, uh, you can remember what you learned in that chapter when you see it out in the real world because you've seen it applied before in a real life situation. This is kind of a loaded question, I guess. Where do you see statistics going in the future? Yeah, I mean, technology is developing so quickly. I can't I can hardly keep up just with the new developments in R in one tiny little area of, of technology and statistics. So I, I imagine the field is going to change as the technology gets better and better and better. Perhaps things that are more difficult to do right now will become um, easier over time and we'll be able to focus more on, you know, bigger ideas and the bigger questions, you know, 
Um, little things like checking the assumptions of your model sometimes take a lot of time. I, I have to say this. I hope this statistic doesn't feel starts to address or continues to address the bias that we have in mm -hmm. our data and in our methods. The things that we have in our field that perpetuate the systemic bias out there. If we just keep measuring things and analyzing things as we always have, we'll continue to have these kinds of biases. So hopefully that's where statistics will go, addressing the bias and then letting us focus more on big ideas by making some of the technical details easier to do. Another future question, what role do you see statistics playing in the future of public health more than it does right now? I mean, I think I can say again, uh, statisticians and analysts can be actively working on addressing bias. I also hope that, that new statistical tools as they are built can help public health as a field to communicate more effectively with the general public. I mean, I, if this past year has taught us anything, it's that our public health communication you know, is not perfect, is far from perfect and that we have a long way to go in that area. So I think statisticians, statistics, analysts, data scientists can help both address bias and can help public health practitioners that are communicating with the public. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a great place to end off to our audience. Make sure that you follow us on our Instagram, which is at Stuff We Don't Learn in School, and sign up for our newsletter via our website, stuffwedontlearninschool.org. You just plug in your email, and then you're automatically signed up onto our newsletter. So the quote for the end of the podcast for this episode is a quote by Mark Twain, and it goes, facts are stubborn things, but statistics are pliable. As always, stuff we don't learn in school would not be possible without our team. Thank you to Victoria Wren for writing the newsletter, Sophie Liu for the resource, Emma Scott for the digital content, and Gloria Wong for the graphic design.